what happened is not extraordinary by any means possible. I am just a normal guy, product of my environment, um, and I have an ACEs score of nine. Adverse childhood experiences means that I've been out of home placement. Um, mother was substance use disorder. Close family members in prison. Um, a lot of trauma myself. Um, and and I am a the the norm. I am not the exception. I am the norm. Um, so foster care, juvenile center, jails, prisons, and I had these really negative self beliefs about myself. Um, I remember one time getting a ride from. My cousin that was in uh, the Marines and uh, getting a ride in his car. And I remember thinking, I will never get something as nice as this. He had a nice car. He had a nice job. Um, and me coming from a traumatic background, uh, never believed. I had all these negative self-beliefs and these ugly negative self-talks about myself, that I'm unworthy, that I don't deserve nice things, that I don't... Uh, deserve to work hard, to be in my kid's life, to be a good father, to to have a good job, to have a nice car. I never believed any of this stuff. And when I got in my cousin's car, he was younger than me. And I remember I never looked up to him at any means until he gave me this ride. And I remember he was in the Marines. He's younger than me. I get in his car and he's giving me a ride someplace. And I remember thinking, I will never get any of this stuff. I will never have a nice car. I will never have a nice job. I will never reach the level of success which he has. And so I that's just, and I believe that a lot of people um have them same beliefs about themselves. And it kind of goes back to uh to Roger Bannister back uh in 1954. They thought it was physically impossible for the human body to run a mile in 4 minutes. And then when Roger Bannister did it in 1954, every single athlete after him did it. And so then beliefs that people had about themselves prohibited them from from um success, prohibited them from excelling. And and so the only restraints that I had were those in my own head. And so being in and out of juvenile centers, being in and out of prison, um, jails and all of these um negative consequences in my life, I believe that I, in a weird way, deserve them for, for all of this. And I never thought there was a way out of it. And it wasn't until on December 18th of 2015, I remember it vividly. I was in a hotel room. Um, I've been out of prison for two months and I got out of prison with a lot of money. So I had a lot of drugs on me. I had a lot of women around me and I was an IV user. And um, I had a UA coming up on Monday, so and this was Friday, and I know that it takes three days for heroin to get out of your system. So I was like, well, I better do one last little hurrah, clean myself out, do my UA Monday, and then get back to using. And the woman that I had with me at that time and the people I had surrounded myself, I had, I had in my eyes everything that I thought I wanted. I had money, I had drugs, I had women I had just like the this weird make-believe dream life for myself and I was still relatively unhappy even though I had everything that I shot for I didn't I, or everything that I thought life meant to go for I was uh, thinking I was a bigger deal than I was and so um one last little hurrah I ended up overdosing and <clears throat> for once in my life the perceptions and 
I don't know how to explain this, these weird filters that I had in my life and these beliefs that I had in myself all shattered in that moment um, when I was thought I was going to die and I was overdosing off heroin and I was just scared to death trying to fight, um, nodding out, going to sleep because I thought if I went to sleep, I'm going to die. Um, and I'm really super tired and I'm trying to fight my tiredness and I'm moving really slow. And I was like, if I fall asleep, I'm going to die. Um, I'm already, I'm having a hard time moving. I can't talk. My body's not responding to me. And I'm trying to tell people, Hey, I'm overdosing. I'm scared, but I couldn't, my motor skills weren't working and I couldn't, um, explain everything that was happening to me. And I could just mumble stuff or sit, talk really slow. <clears throat> and I was just like deathly afraid. And most people, when they reach their level of panic, when you almost hit a car or you do something that frightens you, that, that accelerates your heartbeat, you feel that panic for just a split second. It's just like, whoa. Um, but I experienced that level of panic for an extended period of time. And being so scared for so long, I didn't know what to do. I'm like, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. This is end. And I remember looking at the hotel bathroom door or the hotel door. And I remember thinking, this is it. This is, I'm, I'm going to go out. And this is the last um, view I have of this world right here is this hotel door. And I'm going to overdose and die. And in that moment, um, a thought crept through my head. It was like, what are they going to tell my son? My son that I haven't seen for four years, that I wouldn't think about, that I never did in, I was never a part of his life. Um, I was out here just like living this false facade and chasing this um, ugly, repetet, repetet, ah, this ugly dream. And so finally in that moment when I was deathly afraid and I was scared and thinking I was going to die, this is it. I'm going to meet, I'm going to meet my maker and this is going to be the end of my story and then the thought crept into my head is like, what are they going to tell my son? And I'll keep in mind, all of this happened just in a very split second. And the thought that hit my head was like, what are they going to tell my son? They're going to tell my son that his dad overdosed on a hotel bathroom floor from shooting up heroin. And that sounded so cliche to me. That's not, I was like, when you think of um, a junkie or, 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 these rock stars, when they overdose, they're, they're, it's always in a hotel bathroom. And I, and I was just like, that's so cliche. And that's what they're going to tell my son, that, that I died in a hotel bathroom floor from shooting up heroin. And that was not something I wanted to be told. And prior to that, I had all these weird beliefs of who do I pray to when I pray. But what come rolling off my tongue at that moment without me thinking about it, I said it really super slow. I said, get your money, dude, please don't let me die. And I meant that with every cell in my body when I said that prayer. And I've never prayed that hard since. Um, but I, And I've never, that's the only time I've ever prayed that hard. No matter how hot it gets in a sweat lodge or whatever, I've never prayed as hard as I did in that moment. And I said, get you money, do please don't let me die. And it come rolling off my tongue. And it was weird because like when it happened, um... One of the women that was there that, that, that night explained to me just recently that she remembers she was there and she remembers me crying. And I don't remember crying, 
but I guess that's what happened when I hit the floor, um, when I cried out to creator or whatever like that, 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 that they knew that something was serious. He needs help. So they called 911, brought me down to the desk and just kind of left me there and ambulance showed up. And, and I, I don't remember um, going down to the desk. I don't remember any of this. I just remember waking up in the hospital and had all these tubes on me. And, and, and I was scared because I, I was on parole. So I pulled all of these um, cords and these IVs out and I left the hospital and I went to my mom's house. And I sat there, and that was on that was the last time that I used on December 18th of 2015. And I sat on my mom's house or my mom's couch, withdrawing for five days. I was an IV user, IV opiate user, so for five days I'm just withdrawing, going through flu-like symptoms, aching, and still selling drugs. People were showing up to my mom's house, um, buying drugs off of me. So I had heroin, but for some reason I was so scared to even do just another tiny crumb because I thought I was gonna die. And not only that, but I started um, these these weird beliefs that I had about myself and about life all just shattered in that moment. And I realized when they were going to tell my son, what are they going to tell my son? I realized that my life and perspective didn't matter. It didn't mean nothing. And so they were going to tell me that I was an IV user, in and out of prison his whole life, never really did anything for my community, never really did anything did anything for my family, never put in any kind of work, never did any, all these different things. And that was not a story I wanted told. And so when I shattered that overdose, shattered all these beliefs that I had about life, I sat on my mom's, um, sat on my mom's couch and withdrew for five days and still sold all these drugs, got rid of everything. I had all this money. I was just re- just really sad. So then um, after that was the last time that I mo- that I used. And from that moment on, I have never used any kind of chemicals or, or anything, any kind of mood altering substances. I've took Tylenol a couple times, but but um, and then uh, I went to um, treatment, got out of treatment, went to a halfway house on the lax here. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm never going to come back to the res. Like the res is no place for me. If I want to get better, my journey is going to take me off the res. I'm going to go to Duluth or Minneapolis and go right off into the sunset. And I'm never going to see my community again. But the, but there was the, I believe the creator had different plans. And so coming back to the res after, I remember the, third, the, the very day I left treatment, my cousin picked me up and he had a woman in the car. And she starts shooting up as soon as I blowed up out of treatment. I'm like not even two minutes out of treatment. And she starts shooting up. There was, she was an IV user too. So like watching her go through all the the same little ritual and stuff that I'm familiar with for years from shooting up, my body started physically reacting to this. Even though I put in a lot of work and treatment, that euphoric recall kicked in. And I was so close to using in that car ride and I remember there was a song that came on the radio at that moment. This guy, Knuckle Bear, he has this song called Great Spirit. And in that moment, when I'm about to use, this song comes on the radio by Knuckle Bear. I hear great, great spirit. And it caught my attention. I was like, wait, what is that? What's going on here? And then he said it again, great, great spirit. And that caught my attention. I was like thinking, is this some guy trying to do cultural appropriation to sell records or what is the what is going on here and I looked and it was a Pandora station and sure enough it was an it was a native guy that was making music and there was a part in there where he says um great spirit 
I must speak with you more often. And during that whole time I was in treatment, I was putting my tobacco down every single day, asking the creator to help me stay sober, help guide me, lead me on this path. And in that moment, when I was about to use, that song came on the radio. And that was so profound for me in that moment because it didn't tell me, hey, God, or hey, Allah, or hey, Buddha, or nothing like that. In that moment, when I was, my train left the station to go use, what stopped me dead in my tracks was that song that said, Great Spirit. And, I, and there was a part, and that part where in, the, in a chorus where he says, Great Spirit, I must speak with you more often. It was this weird, so like I had anxiety because I didn't want to use, my heart rate's up, my blood pressure's up, um, my hands and my palms are sweaty, and I'm watching her go through this whole process, and, and, and my heart rate's going 120 miles an hour, and then there was a part in there where he says, Great Spirit, I must speak with you more often. That instantly brought me to a weird calm, and, and this is, I don't talk about this very often, but it started in my chest. It started in my chest and it worked its way out. And it was this weird weightlessness, tingleness that, that started in my chest, worked its way out down my hands, down my arms, to my hands, to my fingertips, down my feet, down my legs, down to my feet, to my toes, then up through my neck to my head. And then my, my like just weird weightlessness, tingleness went all over my whole body and I was instantly calm and at peace. And I took one look at that, that girl that was sitting in the in the passenger seat of this card and instead of trying to get what she had I looked at her again and I realized I was I just felt so much pity and I wanted to help her cuz I was thinking like how is she dealing with life if this is the only way she knows how to feel feel better how painful is the life that she's living if the only solace she has is sticking this needle into her vein so that she can cope and she can be happy and I sat there and I felt so much pity for her and I wanted to tell her like hey there's there's you don't have to you don't have to do this to yourself there is another way out there and it's weird because I didn't talk about that to anybody for a long time that was really personal to me and so that was the start after I left treatment, then I came back to the res, um, and I was uh, I was scared because this is back to the same familiar people. I I know where all the drug houses are. I know all the people that I've hurt. I know all the people that hurt me. I know all the gun um, gangs, and and I came back to this area, and then my family here, and and um, I was really scared at first to venture out. Like I just stayed in my um, at the halfway house once in a while. I tried to go see my mom, tried to go see my dad. I tried to go see family members, but I would get so like triggered out by by just being around them. And even though they wouldn't um, use in front of me or even talk about drugs, it was their mindset, the stuff that they thought um, relevant and to talk about. They talk about like um, lying, cheating, or stealing, or or bringing up old war stories of past stuff that I've done and all the trans transgressions I've done back in my past. And they would bring them forward and brag about them. Then next thing you know, I'm bragging about them, and that's not. Then I and I would leave because I'm like, that's not the mindset that I'm trying to to create. That's not the mindset that I want to be in. So like, I would limit my exposure to all of that, and and so like it was. And there was a funeral one time where I hung out with all of my dad's family. And um, after three days of hanging out with them because I had lost an uncle, on that third day, I really wanted to use. And then I'm at the wake 
and walks my cousin that sells drugs and I'm with my dad and my uncles and everybody that I'll do drugs and then he walks my cousin that that sells drugs and I have a pocket full of hundreds of dollars and I remember thinking I could just spend thousands of dollars on this and 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 send us all be happy because me wanting to be a people pleaser and wanting to be liked loved and accepted by my family and and everything I thought hey I could just buy all these drugs and make us all feel better and we could forget the death of my uncle and it's going on and it was tough and so Finally, when I kept the fire going all night, and when it, daylight came, I left. I had to leave. I was like, I'm gonna end up, uh, I'm gonna end up using if I stay here, um, hanging around all all the people in their mind, the mindsets. And it wasn't the using that 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 scared me. It was the mindsets, and and the, and so like I stayed out of that. And those those were some some early on struggles that that I had to overcome, and so like. Uh, and during this time, um, the social environment that was going on in Malax at that time was was really negative. It was really negative. Um, the Joint Powers Agreement ended with Malax County. Um, the drugs were just really prevalent in the community. Um, drug dealers, gangs, all of this stuff just right in the open. Um, elder, I've heard stories of elders afraid because um, of their family members lying, cheating, and stealing. And, and it was so like the the social environment that I'm trying to navigate to, to get better in was 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 really negative. And and slowly, um, it was there's slowly in the communities things started popping up. I started seeing. I started uh, seeing little inspirations um, all over in the community at this time, and and um, Standing Rock was going on. Um, James Rock, James Cross, and Na was going on. Um, my one of my mentors and friends had an opiate summit that was going on, and watching and watching Brad navigate the community. And hosting these opiate summits kind of goes back to that Roger Bannister running them four miles, that mile in four minutes. And watching him navigate this, and, and, and um, this is before he was even um, commissioner of natural resources, uh, it said that was like a beacon, a lighthouse in this storm or hurricane that I was out to sea on trying to navigate and get better and watching somebody that I used to use with and and party with and, and get into fights and watching him navigate all of this stuff was like, it was like a little beacon of hope. It was like a lighthouse amidst this storm. And so navigating through all of this stuff, um, that gave, that, that started giving me hope. Um, and then I started getting better. Uh, I started going to uh, support groups. I started going to sweat lodges. I remember one week I went to um, five sweat lodges in one week, all different areas throughout Minnesota. And I don't even, I, there's no way I can do that today. Like, I don't know how I was so excited to do that back then, but um, in one week I did four. And so I started meeting people along the way. Um, and then there was another guy that, that uh, um, started mentoring me for recovery. Another person started mentoring me professionally, and then another person started mentoring me spiritually. And at first, the circle was small. Um, it was just me and these elders kind of just bouncing around, and I started playing moccasin game and started going to sweat lodges, and I started going to AA, and I started got a job with DOL. Um, and I didn't go 
travel outside of that circle much. I was, I was, I was, um, I was afraid. And the, the community norms were at that time. I think it's important to, for people to understand that no matter how dire the circumstances are in your community, no matter how negative the social norms are, no matter how many gangs you have in your community, no matter how many drug dealers you have in there, no matter how many or how, um, uh, I don't know, just, I just want people to understand no matter how bad your community is, there is a way out because the best lessons come from the struggle. And when they pulled the joint powers agreement in my community where the 32 officers lost their power to investigate and arrest people in the community, that, that, that the drug dealers started coming out, the gangs started coming out, the, the people started abusing the elders, and it was all out in front. And, and the, the community, community norms shifted to where then it was okay to line, cheat, and steal and do drugs and, and all out in the open, and nobody could do anything about it because there was no cops around. And, uh, and that was where, where the environment, where, where I was in trying to get better. And I would look to people that have done it and would help use the tools and watching them navigate this whole thing gave me hope. I was watching them run four minute miles and that helped me during all this time. And so like going to AA, Standing Rock, um, AIM and, and Natives Against Heroin and all this stuff going on at that time drew inspiration and I didn't know that it was all building up to to what would happen um later on and so this this and plus the stigma that was associated with all of this stuff there was there was there's so much stigma when you go to treatment or you want to get better um I remember getting ridiculed and teased a lot my first year in recovery here in Mille Lacs I was getting called um all kinds of names derogatory names and and, and just because I wanted something something different and and that's and when I started working at DOL and I started working at the at the DNR I remember people when I would tell them I'm a DOL client um, a day labor worker, people that feel like they would just hide their wallet or grab their purse or, or oh, you're one of them. And, and um, having to deal with that, with even within my own tribal government trying to work, um, I, was, I was stigmatized and, and it, was, it was tough. But I used, I used to feel, that used to feel me. The more you told me, no, I couldn't do something, the more that made me want to do it. And during this time, I, as I'm like six months clean, I want to give back. I started applying to prevention specialists. I started applying to the men's halfway house. I started applying anywhere to do with recovery because I was starting to get well and I wanted to give back. And again, the, the Malax band would say, nope, Colin, you don't have enough clean time. Nope, Colin, your background. Nope, you can't do this. No, Colin, you can't help the community, no, Colin, we can't pay you. No, you can't make a difference. No, you can't do this. No, you can't stay sober here. No, you were an IV user. No, you're a junkie. No, you're this. No, you're that. No, you're that. And the more they told me no, the more that chip on my shoulder would grow. I'd be like, okay, well, watch me. And there was no um, community or any kind of resources outside of, of um, programming to help me. Unless I was involved in a halfway house or unless I was in primary treatment, there was no resources in the community to help guide me in my journey in recovery. And so I felt 
Like this is going to sound super egotistical and it's going to sound super whatever. But I felt like I was thrown to the wolves and I come back leading the pack. And I was trying to help my community and I wanted to make a difference. And they kept telling me, no, no, Colin, you can't do this. No, you're an IV user. No, you're a junkie. No, you're this and that. And I was just like, okay, well, this is my community. This is where I was born. This is where I was raised. There's nobody out here in the community that is making a difference. The police just lost their powers. There's something's got to happen. Something's got to change. And I would use these no's to feel me. And I would sit in these, these, hosting these meetings day in and day out, day in and day out. Nobody's showing up, but it never deterred me. And the only and people would ridicule me and tease me and, and say all these negative, hurtful things about me. And I just, I would just eat it up and keep going, eat it up and keep going, eat it up and keep going. And there was, my circle was small. It's nothing, just a bunch of mentors and then me. And after a while, um, using social media, other people started, I started, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to use social media to document my my journey into recovery, that it is possible here. And when there's no resource, no community resources, no nothing or whatever, and and, and Lax Band is telling me I can't work in the recovery field and, and all of this stuff, I'm going to use that um, to propel me. And so then I started using just all over Facebook. Um, and around a year clean, then a guy started showing up to recovery events or recovery things. Then a group of women, there was the, I remember it was so fun in the beginning um, before all the major publicity and all the pressure and everything that, that, that associated with Sober Squad today. But early on, we didn't even care. We didn't care what nobody said. We were out here. We were doing it. We were doing all kinds of um, sweat lodges and, and well varieties and AAs. And we were just out there just rocking and rolling. Just like, and we were all over social media like, hey, we're sober. Check, check us out. Look at us. And we don't care what you think. We don't care about the social norms. We don't care about the gangs. We don't care that there's no police here. We don't care that we can't get a job within the recovery field. We don't care about none of this. Look at us. We're out here doing it. And through that, the circle started growing. Then a system fell in place. And all the while, the community members are dying in Mille Lacs. Um, in a matter of, of two years, 25 people overdosed and died. There was two homicides and then there was one fatal police shooting. And it, the more people that would die, the harder we would work, our small little group of people. And I say this all the time. It's like in order to change the world, you just need a small group of dedicated people. And that's how I looked to that first initial crew. There was 11 of us, that first initial little crew of people trying to make a difference. And, and we didn't care what nobody thought. We didn't care about the pressure. We didn't care about the money. We didn't care about this. And we were just out there working harder than everybody else. And then we started to get organized. We started creating a system. We started using so um, the group chats to communicate, to share resources. We started advocating on social media. We started a Facebook page, started advocating on social media about all the access points to to um, to programming or all the access points to culture or and using the social media platform to change social norms in the community. And that's what happened. We started controlling the angle of how you're going to view Mille Lacs. 
We're not going to talk about all these deaths. We're not going to talk about all this drug rampant uh, um, drug culture. We're not going to talk about all these gangs. We're not going. We're just going to show a bunch of people getting well, and it and it started uh, it started to work. More and more people started um, started reaching out to us, and we started making it okay for people to get into recovery. We started making it okay for you to want to have a um, to have all of this stuff in your life. And around a year clean, I remember I got a full-time job fighting fires at DNR. I got a one-year clean, um, and I got uh, a full-time fighter fighting job, one-year clean, and I got a license, driver's license, and I got a car. I got all of these major milestones or at one year clean, and I felt sad all of a sudden. I was just like, man, why, why, why is all this going on like why do I feel so sad I should be elated that that all of these milestones I'm achieving and I'm reaching all of these goals why am I sad right now and one of my mentors at that time said you know in life when you're so used to failing over and over and over again because I've tried getting sober before I've tried doing all of this stuff but I've always failed so finally you're at a year clean when I was reaching these major milestones I didn't know how to perceive it so I started talking to myself differently at that moment when I was realizing that that when I'm so used to failing, I almost want to self-sabotage everything that I'm going on. Like, hey, this isn't normal right here. This isn't normal for me to have all of this stuff. This isn't normal for this. So I started changing how I would talk to myself. And I would say, it doesn't matter whether I deserve it or not. I want it. I want to work hard. I want to be in recovery. I want to have a good job. I want to be a good father. I want to be a good uncle. I want to be a good community member. And I want to be sober. And so start changing these these self-talks about what I was going through and leading all of this ways. And all of our, our, our recovery crew started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then people started reaching out to us. So then we had to create a system that could take on all these people that are reaching out and how can we get them help and how can we keep building off this and what used to be just a couple meetings a week then all through all the different people that are getting in recovery here started hosting different days and started hosting all these and what used to be just a couple nights a week now is every single night of the week then we started going to pizza hut on friday nights every friday nights we just all pitch in and, and buy pizzas um, and the, the system that emerged was just the glue that tied all of these programs together, whether it was detox treatment or coming back into the community. When you're transitioning through all of these, these, these programs, Sober Squad is the glue that is by tying all of these programs together. And we're going to hold your hand through that whole journey and bring you back into the community. And I think that is important because when somebody, you have to strike while the iron is hot. When somebody wants to make the decision in their life, you have to act now. You have to pounce while that iron is hot in order to, to, to make the changes necessary for them. And you have to make the dedication necessary to that their journey isn't 
um, they ain't ever felt alone through their whole journey. Because when people make these decisions in their life to to alter their life, they're scared. They're making life-changing decisions and they need support during these life-changes decisions. And so it's important that, that, that you offer support and that you are there with them every single step of the way. And I know that it's hard to do, but that is, I say all the time that there is no greater resource on this planet than somebody else that is in recovery. Because unless you have been there, you don't know how or how alone or how difficult these situations can be. And when people in the community find out that we don't get paid to do any of this stuff, we just want to do this to see you get better, that puts them in a different mindset. Like, why are you doing this? You're not getting paid to do this. You're doing this because you just want to see me succeed. And that start, there's, there's like this weird exchange that goes on right there when you're volunteering. But I think that is a fundamental spiritual component that is vital to the success of Sober Squad. Because once you start introducing incentives, there's room for incentives and there's room room for payment and all this, but I mean, volunteering is important not only for the person that, that is volunteering, but for the person that is receiving the services for volunteering. And so that is, I think, a fundamental component to changing your community when your intentions are pure when your intentions are just to make a difference and to see somebody succeed it it, it yields greater results than somebody than any kind of program that could ever get paid for it what happened during that time is we stopped waiting for people to save us and and I know that on reservations there's all these social programs that are out there that 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 you can get you HUD housing that can get you food that can get you um, even per cap or TANF or or whatever it is there's all these social programs that are out there and so that kind of puts you in a in a weird mindset to where like you were starting to expect things and that puts you getting you thinking like you know what starts off to where you're reliant with a cane. You get reliant on this social program, so you start relying it on like a cane. And then after a while, that cane progresses to a walker. And then you're on a walker, and you get reliant on this walker for a while. And then all of a sudden, you get, you're get you like, oh, you know, I don't have to work so hard, so I can sit in this wheelchair. So then you put yourself in a wheelchair, and you're wheeling around expecting everybody to do all of this stuff for you. You're in a wheelchair waiting for all these social programs to come to you, not knowing that you can stand up, and you can run, and you can sprint. And it's going to be difficult. I know that that your muscles are going to have atrophied, and I know that it's going to it's going to feel uncomfortable. But I can guarantee you, if you give yourself time to develop and and time to grow, that all of your dreams and everything that you can set out can can do. And what's going on in my what happened in my community with the people dying, the Joint Powers Agreement, people telling me no that I can't work at the at at at, at behavioral health, no that I can't stay sober. I was a junkie. I was an inmate number twenty one eighty seven sixty nine. That was me sitting in my wheelchair waiting for somebody to come and hand me this stuff. And it wasn't until December eighteenth of twenty fifteen when it, when I decided to stand up. I decided to stand up and walk. And and since then. I have witnessed an immense amount of miracles that happens over and over and over and over again. And 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 it was and it was the what the opportunities that were presented to me were presented by by people that went on before me. You know, the people like like and you could say that this go trickles all the way up to my ancestors. What my ancestors went through to provide for my for my grandma and what my grandma went through to provide for my mom and what my mom went through to provide for me. And same with the people, my mentors, what they went through and the way that they paved the way for me to come in and start doing this. And it's the same way that that all of our tribes function and work 
in order to achieve whatever it is that we're trying to achieve. And the only way that we could do this is if we work together. The only way that we could pull our communities out of these 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 mindsets or these cesspools or whatever you want to call it is if we work together. Um, and you've heard the saying where it takes a village to raise a child. I believe it takes a state to raise a village. When um, all of our tribes or groups or people come together to show communities what recovery looks like and what people are capable of, I think that can instill beliefs in people. When you see a couple hundred people in recovery walking through, that's a bunch of people running a four-minute mile. Everything that you think is believing, like, oh, you can't run a mile in four minutes. It's physically impossible for your body to do that. Then you see a couple hundred people that have actually ran a four-minute mile. Then that instills the belief that, yes, you can do it too. And so everything that, that that's happened and that's been that, that the story, the way that Sober Squad is, is, is like... I am not anything special. I just went first and I just listened to the mentors and the people that have laid down the groundwork for me to do this. And I am trying to pass this down to the next person. And the only difference is, is we have used all these inspirations and we've just given it steroids. We haven't reinvented the wheel. What uh, Alkali Lake has done up in Canada is similar to what's going on here where, where the people got sober then got into council in the same way with, 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 with Brad when he got sober and then he got into council. And so like the, this, this hierarchy of people that have emerged from the community, the higher they go up and the higher the, and they're bringing people with them, then you're changing the community from the inside out. And so these systems that are implemented all over our nations or in our communities are systems of oppression that, that we are not used to. And so all this lateral stuff comes out and all this or whatever like that. But when you learn to empower and support individuals in recovery to build healthier communities, amazing things happen. When you get out of that mindset of, of oppression and you start helping and, import and empowering and supporting individuals, amazing, beautiful things happen. And that's what needs to happen in a lot of these communities. You need to get out of that 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 oppression mindset and get into a, a, a mindset of empower and supporting and trusting and allowing people to make failures and make mistakes. And once that started happening and, and the recovery community in Malak started getting really robust and started getting really big, um, then we started introducing trainings. That's when this I stand by this peer recovery sports specialist training. I think it is a vital component to what Sober Squad is. You get like Sober Squad, 46 hours of Sober Squad training is what peer support is, except for we've done it from a grassroots level. And and when I went through the training, I realized, I tell you, this is billable. This is an actual billable service. What I'm doing in the community, what I just learned from, from just hands-on experience, they've created a curriculum for it, and it's billable. And so that gave me a lot of confidence in what we're doing. And the leadership components um, are vital because everybody is so used to, to, to systems of me, 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 me. We need to learn how to let each other lead. And so then we started getting into a lot of leadership trainings with, with, with James Anderson and all these other people. And, and we started implementing some structure with mentors and co-mentors in each chapter um, and Right now, we're working with um, some lawyers out of Washington, D.C. Um, me and Brad are working with these guys that are helping establish corporate structure so that way we can have official 501c3 status so we can start going after um, larger donations. And already, if you look at the uh, different Sober Squad chapters that have emerged through just in Minnesota here, um, each event that they host every week 
or not every week, but every, every whatever annual event they host in their communities. There's there's um Soberfest up in Fond du Lac. There's uh the recovery retreat up in Red Lake. There's a walk in 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 Brainerd. There's the Halloween party in in uh, Hinkley. Um, there's a volleyball event here in Malax. Plus all these peer support trainings. There's recovery coach academies. All of this stuff costs costs a lot of money, and the minimum amount I've seen for for a sober squad. To host an event was thirty five hundred. That's the bare minimum, and that's with shirts, food, catering, um, venue, and advertising, and everything. The bare bones is thirty five hundred dollars, and this is all strictly volunteers that 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 the community members have have gone sought after and 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 reach these benchmarks to host these and these peer recovery support specialist trainings that we're hosting those are those are $25,000 a piece and we've hosted two of those and we got another one coming up here in mid March and these these the James Anderson trainings we've had cost like $5,000 a piece and so the recovery uh retreat up in Red Lake that costed around $17,000 so like these these events that are happening are events that happen with community members coming together trying to solve a problem and this is it's it's amazing for me to witness like I said I just went first and now I sit in awe as I watch all these other people get involved and and raise all this money and do all this stuff and it's just amazing thing to witness and so right now I think about that sometimes because I think about in the beginning days is beginning days when 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 we didn't have no funding. We didn't have any of that. We didn't have any of that stuff like that. And not once did we let that deter us from the mission at hand. And so um, we've only been out here for just a couple years, but already it's progressed from from almost every single tribe in Minnesota. Then there's a couple tribes in Wisconsin. There's a Sober Squad Arizona. There's a Sober Squad Oklahoma. And we're sharing all of these resources and solicitations solicit uh donations solicitation requests and we're sharing all these this information back and forth to achieve the best outcome so when somebody wants to start a sober squad chapter how can we put the best personnel around them for them to achieve what they need to achieve in their communities and so like we are just lifting up all these community leaders all over and we are changing social norms all across in the most hostile environments which our reservations can be and and there's no way that this couldn't have happened without the buy-in and help of thousands of people. And through these communities, these hostile communities, um, these people that emerged uh, up in Fond du Lac, there's Chandel and um, Natalie. Up in Red Lake, there's Carl and Shaylee. Out in Little Falls, there's Anna and Brainerd. There's Tashaya and Hinkley. There's Daphne and... Uh, uh, who am I forgetting here? In in Bemidji, there's Kathleen, um, and uh, Leech Lake. There is James and Tony and White Earth. There's Ashley and in Mercedes, um, Grand Rapids. There's Curtis Jackson, Hinkley. There's Ron and Rita. Out in LCO, there's Danielle Blover. Out in LCO, there's our uh, Saint Croix. There's there's Spring Lasseur, I think her name is. Um, and Arizona, there's Philip Philip Roberts. Out in out in Oklahoma, you got Wes Heyman. Um, all of these very beautiful leaders that are emerging, taking on their communities, making huge differences, and and, and those guys are the the true heroes. And all of this stuff, the work and dedication that they're putting in in their communities to change all of this. Um, and and not to forget the mentors and everything that are that are are inspiring the people that are making these changes are huge. Um, 
And, um, you know, what, what these guys are doing um, is what the mission state um, stands true for. They're empowering and supporting individuals in recovery to build healthier communities. And when we all work together, um, our communities are, are, are flourishing. And I, my name is Colin Gash, and I hope to see all you guys out there at a recovery event, at a meeting, at a powwow, or even just out to go to, 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 to eat or whatever. And I just, I just... I just want to say that I love you guys and I love my community and I love what's going on out there and all you guys together are inspiring me to put in the work necessary to keep going and I love you guys and thank you guys for that.